All of us are on a complicated journey of faith, pursuing truth and deeper knowledge of God. But how do we know we're doing it right? Many of you know that faith is a complicated thing, and it can be a painful and difficult journey, and far too often we are not given a space where we can safely address the complications and issues that arise naturally. My name is Joshua Patterson, and one of my best friends, Marty Frederick, and I have agreed to join each other in creating exactly that kind of space where questions and critical thinking are welcome. We want to look honestly at the issues and questions plaguing the Christian church today and to genuinely seek out what it means to live like Jesus in our ever-changing world, in our expanding universe, and in our pluralistic society. We believe that doubt is not the enemy of faith, but perhaps one of its greatest allies. We think that the Christian life is more about asking the right questions than it is about finding the answers. And we believe we are being called to continually ask those questions, renewing our minds and rethinking our faith in the process. Thank you for joining us on that journey. All right. Well, welcome to another episode of the Rethinking Faith podcast. As always, I'm one of your hosts, Josh Patterson. And with me today is my good friend, Marty Frederick. Marty, how's it going, man? It's pretty good. It's uh, it's getting to be cold these days, Josh. I don't know. I'm starting to get, I'm starting to not be able to hand, I'm wearing a jacket right now in, <laughs> while I'm inside. It's starting to get a little crazy. Yeah, it is getting kind of cold. And it's funny that you mentioned that because I'm glad that Bruxy's not here to call us uh, old hip grandmas again yeah, for yeah. talking about how cold we are. <laughs> yeah, Bruxy, he, he he definitely gets the he, he wins the Trump card as far as like where where he lives in the in the cold weather he gets to experience as opposed to where we are. So. Yeah, so he it was nice of him to make fun of us. I think that's the best insult I've ever received in old hip grandma. So I'll take it. I will take it. So yes. thank you. Thank you for that. Bruxy, if you're listening. Yeah. Uh, but the only thing, so Marty, I didn't want to just talk to you today about the weather, although that could yeah. be fun, especially if you want to live into our old hip grandma vibes. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. we do have a guest with us today. And actually, uh, it's a guest I'm very excited about. Um, this particular person has shaped uh, my faith uh, very much, uh, very greatly. I started reading their work uh, back in college. Um, and I've, I think I've pretty much read everything <laughs> that they have put out. Mm. Um, and so maybe I'm a bit of a, a fan if you can use that language. Uh, so I'm honored and excited and privileged to welcome Dr. Scott McKnight uh, to our podcast today. Dr. McKnight, how are you? Doing very well. And it's cold here. Uh, I'm about <laughs> uh, 25 miles north of Marty, but um, I'm indoors and it's tolerable. Yeah. And I am a grandpa. <laughs> so, good to be with you, Josh. Yeah, we're glad to have you, Scott. Um, so one of the things we like to do is we, just to break the ice, we have a, a question that we ask every guest that comes on the shows. Um, I'm I'm really hopeful for your answer. Scott, who is your favorite ice hockey team? <laughs> oh, ice hockey. Um, that's kind of like playing soccer on ice. Yeah. <laughs> Similar. I don't know. I don't even know who the teams are. We, I think it's the Chicago Blackhawks are in Chicago. Yep. I don't know anything about hockey. <laughs> well, we're going to go ahead. Hockey. We're going to go ahead and just say Chicago Blackhawks is your answer because it never, we, I never get that answer. Uh, okay. That's my, my favorite. Josh is in Maryland. So 
He's a oh yeah, Doctor David Fitch. He said yeah, the Black Fitch Hawks gave too. you that answer. He did. Yeah. Fitch gave you that answer. Yeah. So that's good. Um, but then Scott, also just a little bit more serious. Um, just can you give us a brief background? Who are you, and what do you do? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a professor of New Testament at Northern Seminary. I, my calling is to keep David Fitch in line on his <laughs> frivolous and frivolity, um, his frivolousness and frivolity and nonsense and opinionations. <laughs> so that's my job is to keep Fitch in line. And I try to get him to read the Bible, and sometimes I have to bring one into his class. I'm not quite sure what to do with one. <laughs> That's perfect. Somebody yeah. needs to do it. And so yeah. thank you for, for taking on uh, the yoke of that yeah. responsibility. <laughs> That's great. Um, well, and then one other question we asked, just as a brief bio, Scott, um, uh, our podcast is called Rethinking Faith. Uh, what would you say has been the most important aspect of your faith that you've had to rethink over your time as a believer? Oh, you know, I, I talk about this in a book called The Blue Parakeet. Um, I went through a phase uh, after college. I went to a Christian college, Cornerstone University, for which I'm very grateful. Uh, pretty fundamentalist at the time, uh, but I had a professor who encouraged me to think for myself. And I came out of college and into seminary right away, knowing more what I didn't believe than what I did believe. It was an interesting time. And I'm grateful for the professors I had at Trinity, Walt Liefeld in particular, for um, his course on the Gospels. Because uh, for me, even though I had taken one course on the Gospel of John when I was in college, uh, this course that I took uh, put in into my mind and right in my face an image of Jesus that revitalized my faith. I, I, I would say I went from Christian uh, a belief in Christian theology or Christianity into a belief in Jesus. And it was really significant and shaped everything about my theological career from that time. This was 1976, the fall of 1976. And I began studying the Gospels right then and just loved it, did my dissertation in it. And my first 12 years of being a professor was focused on the Synoptic Gospels. And then uh, the next 17 years teaching at North Park University, um, my favorite class every year and often every semester was a course on Jesus. So that's, that's what reshaped my faith. I keep losing my, okay. I can hear you though. Cool. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. Thank you for that. I know um, I can, I can kind of relate uh, for myself. Uh, I had a, you know, a whole bunch of questions and all this stuff as, as well, like you're mentioning. And then I kind of stumbled upon, um, what some people refer to as like uh, Jesus-centered uh, theology, Jesus-centered uh, hermeneutics, things like that. And just for whatever reason, I was so captured uh, by Jesus that that's the, that's the thing that um, I've held on to and continue to hold on to, even as I continue to ask questions and grow. And 
uh, things like that. So um, that's cool. And, and actually, uh, the, the um, oh my goodness, it just escaped my mind. How did I forget? The Jesus Creed, <laughs> thank you, was, yeah, one, of the, was yeah. one of the first pieces uh, in that puzzle for me that, that really helped me. So thank you for sure. that. That's wonderful, wonderful. Yeah, so um, Scott, today we're excited because you have written a, uh, a wonderful book, super helpful, um, called A Church Called Tove, Forming a Goodness Culture That Resists Abuses of Power and Promotes Healing. Uh, this is a very timely book. I think it's a, it was a very brave <laughs> book to write, uh, but it's a book that what I appreciate the, the most about it uh, was there's a whole lot of stuff out there that uh, just kind of uh, points fingers or talks about the problem without offering much of a solution. And your book kind of flips that. You have, you know, you're very honest and, and um, straightforward about the issue in the beginning of the book, uh, maybe for the first third, but then the rest of the book is just a beautiful solution and vision uh, for us moving forward. And so I, I really appreciated that um, about the book. But the, the question that I wanted to ask, though, is, is why did you decide to write a book about abuse in the church? And who, uh, who was it that you had in mind? Um, okay, I'll, I'll answer the second because it tells everything. Uh, we wrote this book, my daughter and I, Laura Berenger, for wounded resistors. And that is people who have been wounded by churches and yet uh, tried to make things right. Sometimes going one-to-one, uh, going to the person who wounded them, sometimes going through the proper uh, channels, talking to people, going to elders, going to leaders, going to, let's say, people who are above them in the leadership chain, whatever, and then got wounded again. So uh, when the story of Willow Creek, when the story of Harvest, when the stories of the Southern Baptists, when the stories of the Roman Catholic Church, you know, all these churches came out in the Me Too and the Church Too movement. And it was about women. Um, I was paying very close attention, partly because uh, we went to Willow Creek for 10 years. We were not there when this happened and uh, or when the story broke. Uh, and my daughter and her husband were at Willow Creek, and he was on staff at Willow Creek for a decade. So when this uh, story broke, uh, we had both of us my wife and I and my daughter and her husband had a very keen eye and uh, radar-like uh, sensitivity to the stories about this and what happened. And I was approached, uh, I wrote a blog post that, uh, that really did make a lot of waves at Willow Creek and uh, resonated with a lot of people. Then I wrote a couple more. Uh, I was approached by a publisher to write a book about Willow Creek, and I said, you know, I'm not a church historian. I'm not an American historian. And Willow Creek's not going to give me access to records. So there's no way I'm going to do that. Uh, and yet, as a, as a professor in seminary, I had students coming to me uh, in two ways. Uh, Josh, you'll understand this. They come to me, one, one student comes to me and says, tell me what I can do now so that I don't become like one of those pastors later. And he's a talented guy. And he says to me, 
I think I could, I think I could do this. He said, I think I could become that person. What do I need to do now? Well, the other side of this is the number of female students that I have who have been wounded by pastors, who were abused by family members, by church leaders, by people they knew, um, also made me very sensitive to the women's issue and to the importance of their having a safe place to tell their story and having people with platforms who will stand in their corner and stand up for them. So I remember the first, uh, the first night that the story broke. I knew uh, two of those women pretty well. I wrote them that night and I, I told them I was really sorry. And I said, I believe you. And I cannot tell you what that does for those women because those women exercise extraordinary heroic courage to come forward because most of them get abused. Most of them are told that it's called gaslighting at times. They're told that, um, you know, you're, you didn't really perceive what happened. You, um, uh, you're the one who's wrong. You're confusing people in the church. You're dividing the church. You're not following Matthew 18. You're not following the pastoral epistle. They will use these things, and it makes people wonder, well, maybe, maybe I am wrong about this. And that's called gaslighting. They experience this so often that it is painful to come forward. And so we wrote the book for the wounded resistors. But we wrote the book not as an expose. We knew that we had to do some of this. It doesn't make any sense to just write seven points about Tove of goodness for, with no context. This was our context, mostly the context of women being abused in churches, but we know it's broader males and it's not just sexual abuse. There's a lot of power and narcissism involved in these abuse stories. But we wanted the book to have a, rede a redemptive message. And, um, you know, I was approached by some, some people who were abused in another church, two guys, uh, leaders. And uh, they asked me to write a book. I said, look, I, I'm only interested if, if it can be redemptive. In other words, yes, th this is the problem. Narcissism, power mongering, creating a fear culture, uh, intimidating, loyalty, you know, heroic images, celebrities, you know, all these sort of things. Um, but I said, no, I, I will only be interested if we can say, this is what we need instead. And um, I think both of you guys will, will recognize that for me, uh, the issue involved in these stories is not simply that, let's say, a pastor is a power-mongering narcissist who generates fear and anybody who doesn't go along with the program gets eliminated, there's a culture involved here. A culture of people who make that kind of pastor 
very comfortable. Or a pastor who generates a culture that makes that kind of pastor very comfortable. So I was interested in the culture question. And my daughter and I talked about this a lot in the process of writing the book. We kept talking culture. And the more we talked about it, the more we realized that this was probably the critical problem involved in most of these churches. I wouldn't say probably. That is the problem. It's almost never just a pastor doing these kinds of things on his own. Yeah, I, that, when I was um, reading, when I was reading a church called Tov, it uh, was right around the time when also the whole thing with uh, Pastor Carl Lentz happened at Hillsong. And this culture question that you, you I mean, you framed the book with uh, really helped me to make sense exactly, you know, kind of how, how you're talking about. There's uh, a specific culture, a specific uh, maybe system or model um, that has become kind of popular. And then what we see is, almost like without, you know, giving people full pardon um, for behavior that they do, but this, this system or this culture is producing or setting people up for some kind of uh, ultimate failure is what it seems like, kind of like there's this, this major cultural um, piece that's involved. And so that, that really stood out to me and kind of helped me make sense of things like, ah, I see. Um, and it also, it also made me think about trying to remember uh, when the Apostle Paul talks about, uh, you know, how it's not that we are, are fighting against people, uh, but rather principalities and powers of darkness. And so I kind of, the, the way I kind of see that and look at that is that there are these principalities and powers in darkness that um, kind of can operate within various systems, you know, whether it be political or it's a church system, or it's some kind of company, or, you know, CEO, whatever. And remembering that those are the things that we take issue with, not the person themselves. So how do we, you know, address those without completely just destroying a person? So I really appreciated that approach yeah. that you guys took. Yeah. Well, the... Um uh, when I when when the stories first broke that we were interested in uh, in the Chicagoland area, there was a tendency uh, to scapegoat the pastors and say, "Now, if we get rid of this pastor, we'll solve the problem." And I kept saying to people that I knew, "No, no, that's not going to solve the problem." Uh, it was it wasn't just that pastor, uh, and yes, that pastor contributed. So I, I wanted to develop a model that emphasized, let's say, the pastor shaping the culture or nurturing a culture and the congregation who has been in part shaped by that pastor, then shaping and forming that pastor to fit into that congregation's mode or model or way of life. But it is not simply the pastor. It's a, it's, a, it's a group of people working together, and over time they form a culture. And that, that was what I wanted to talk about. And I wanted to talk about 
the kinds of characteristics, attributes, habits that uh, a culture of tov or goodness would have rather than a culture of toxicity. So that, that, was, um, that was really crucial for Laura and me as we were studying is, is to keep thinking not just of one person or just a congregation, because congregations often abuse pastors. I mean, I mean, I was with a pastor in the last few days who, when I brought this up, said, oh, let me tell you the stories. So there are, uh, it works both ways. It's, it's not just a pastor. Um, many times it's the formation of the formative pastor, let's say the one who plants the church, can create the culture uh, the most. But it's rare that it can be done alone. You've got to have a group of people to form a culture like that. Yeah, that's that's so true. And I mean, you mentioned the word toxic. And, and I think a lot of what we're trying to do with this podcast uh, is help people um, be able to identify, especially with this episode, identify their own culture that they're within that you're talking about. Um can you talk a little bit about how to identify these warning signs uh, of the toxic cultures that may, may be a part of, like one of the early warning signs you, signs you mentioned is narcissism. And you've talked about that a little bit already, but can you talk about a little bit about what that seems to look like, that toxic culture? Well, um, a toxic culture is going to take on different characteristics. And one of the things that we tried to do was map, uh, you know, th- this book began with the recognition of the toxicities that that we were observing in churches that abuse women. That's that's where it began. And then we generalized and expanded because these same characteristics are are, uh, characteristics of white churches that are racist. The same kinds of things are going on. Okay, so we we know about narcissism from psychological analysis. My wife's uh, a psychologist. And um, they have um, an unusual sense of grandeur, um, great ambition often. They um, seem to be able to make everything about themselves, even when they want to talk about the church doing well, it's a pat on the back. They are also characteristically incapable of genuine empathy and being moved by empathy. And what is most damaging about narcissism, I don't think there's anybody in our country right now who doesn't recognize this in our president, um, is that they absolutely have no insight into themselves. A narcissist doesn't see what other people see about themselves. They don't see it. So therefore, their ambition and their mission, and they are often very ambitious, successful people. If you work hard enough with enough drive, with enough resources, and enough sycophants or retainers or people surrounding you, you can make things happen. All right? You can be a total jerk and make things happen and make good things happen, okay? So um, 
That is at the core of many toxic church cultures. But also coming along with that is what I call power through fear. Uh, and that is, let's say, if pastors, leaders, and churches have power. And I don't uh, equate the word power with anything negative. If you're using power for others, that's a good thing. If you're using power against others, that's a bad thing. Okay, so um, they have power, but they intimidate people. They make people afraid. Um, I was talking with someone just, just this week who said uh, the story was sort of like this. If I wear this, that pastor will make fun of me. So the person said, I was tempted to change my clothing, and I decided I won't let that pastor control me. Now, that right there is perceptive. That pastor probably does not realize that he is intimidating with language about clothing. All right? So these are, those are two of the big things that are symbols. But, Marty, here's the thing that, I, that we recognized and we discovered. Most people don't see these in the pastors of these kinds of churches because they're not close enough to know them or see anything. They're all behind closed doors. These people know how to present a persona on the platform that says the right thing, does the right thing, sounds the right way, and as a result, people think they're perfect. All right? Then they discover that, you know, that they're mean, that they're greedy, uh, that they're insecure. You know, that's one of the typical terms people use when they don't know exactly what to diagnose with. But um, uh, they see these things. So we, we also noticed uh, some patterns that look like this, that there was uh, a lack of empathy, a lack of grace. You know, let's just say, Marty, you're a, You've been given a great opportunity. I, I don't know. I'm going to use you as a, as a music guy. I don't know if you do music at all. Okay, let's just say you're a music guy, and you get up, and you don't have a particularly good night. All right? And you're 26 years old, 28 years old, and you're in a, you're in a, a church, and you're, you're older than that. That's right. So you're in a, you're in a church, and um, they're giving you a great opportunity to lead worship, you don't do so well, all right, a told pastor will talk to you and say, you know, did you prepare? Uh, is, this, is this music within your range? Um, where Are you struggling in your personal life? Whereas a toxic pastor will intimidate and berate and yell and curse and humiliate you in order to shame you in front of others at times. A toxic pastor um, is a, a person who cares so much about the institution and the reputation of the church and what it's called and what it's known as that they just run roughshod over people, whereas a tove church cares about people. Um, a toxic church will tell any narrative, any they'll spin the story, in any way that protects the church. Right now, my daughter and I are dealing with a significant ministry in the United States 
where the, um, the leaders of this ministry are spinning stories to protect the brand and reputation and to keep the truth from being told. But a Tove pastor and a Tove church is humble enough to want the truth to be known, and they'll tell the truth. A Tove church pursues justice, which means doing the right thing, whereas a toxic church values loyalty above everything else. Can't tell you the number of people who told us that all that mattered was loyalty, which all goes back to the narcissist and the power of your fear and all that stuff. And then there's this whole thing of celebrity culture where the pastor or the leaders and uh, or the pastor and his sycophants or her sycophants and the retainers are um, immune to actually serving other people. They call themselves servants. And they even may brag about servant leadership by telling a story of something they did that sounded like servant leadership. But in their heart, they want people serving them, serving them because they're narcissists and their ego is never going to have enough. And so um, I'm, this, this is something that doesn't work well with a lot of pastors. A lot of them are my friends. I don't like the term leader in church. Uh, I, I, you know, this isn't a, this is not at all a big word in the New Testament. Uh, the, the image of, um, let's say, a leader in the church is a pastor, uh, the one with spiritual gifts. Those are the terms that matter to me. And I have found that in a leadership culture, there is a big struggle for the tov attribute of Christ-likeness. So they're, they're always talking about being leaders. And I'm thinking, you know, we are followers. We aren't leaders. We are followers of Jesus. He's the leader. So uh, these, are, these are some of the characteristics that I would be looking for. I know it's hard to detect narcissism when you don't have access to these people. But, but look at things like, uh, is there grace in this church? For people who fail, uh, how do they respond to people who fail? Um, do they know my name? Do they know my story? Do we make a, a real uh, effort at getting to know one another in this church so that people's stories are being told? Do they tell the truth? Do they nurture doing what's right, regardless of the pain it brings? Um, are they serving others? Um, or are they being served? That sort of thing. So these are these are the things I'd be looking for if mm -hmm. I were looking to see if there's a narcissistic culture going on. Toxic. Yeah. Culture. Yeah. But before I met Josh, um, long before we ever worked together, I worked in a ministry in a different place, and uh, I remember coming to my wife and and explaining to her that I felt like it was time for us to begin looking to go elsewhere, and uh, I had. I had kind of mentioned essentially, you know, um, I feel like I'm being berated behind closed doors and that these are the types of people that like this, this is the person I'm dealing with. And every situation that I would mention to my wife, she would say, I've just, I don't see it. I don't see that in this person. I, I, I've, you know, I, I, I sit in the sermons on Sunday. I'm a part of these groups and we go to these things at his house and these different events and different things like that. 
and I've, I've never seen anything you're describing to me. And how, how can I possibly like, she's, she was in this, she was in the worst place. She said, I, I, I want to believe you because you're my husband and I want to support you because you're my husband. But at the same time, it's so hard because none of this seems to connect. And so when you were talking about that earlier, how a lot of it happens behind closed doors, that was bringing a lot of those, those memories up for me uh, because it's so true um, that the, the protection of that culture, the protection of, of what it means to be the leader um, doesn't often come out for everyone to see from the platform on a Sunday morning. Cause that yeah. would be, that would be a terrible place for that to come out. Um, so, so, so thank you for pointing those things out. I, I think that's really helpful for people um, to, I, I don't think the goal in any of this is for someone to listen to this interview and write their letter of resignation tomorrow where they're at though. Yeah, um, no. So I, no. but, but thank you for laying all of that out. I think that's really important. You know, and I think the people who are in these situations, um, need to, they need to be cautious. I mean, it's easy to say uh, the pastor doesn't, uh, let's say that my leader uh, in whatever ministry someone's in um, doesn't think I'm gifted for this. Well, he's a narcissist. I mean, it's so simple to say that. Now, that's not necessarily, I mean, you might not be good enough. You might not be gifted to do this. So, um, but at the same time, you need to find some people that you can talk to that is not gossip oriented, but that is discernment oriented. And it's, I would say, um, find somebody who's bald or gray haired that you can talk to who's, who has some wisdom in these situations and say, you know, um, that's something you need to pursue. Or you say, you know, it'll be okay. You need, you need to just carry on and let's let's wait a few months and see what happens here. And uh, so we need we need some wisdom and some discernment in these situations. Yeah, Scott, that that's such good advice. And I know that's something that um, for me, I kind of I learned the hard way. Um, I, so I currently uh, go and I, I see somebody and 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 talk with somebody because I have significant experiences from my past. Um, where it is affecting the, um, it's affecting my ability to do my job in my current ministry um, role. So I'm, I'm a vocationally full-time a high school and young adult pastor. Um, I work in a church that I think embodies Tove. <laughs> it, this, one of the things that has, was so hopeful is that coming from the place that I was to where I'm at now, um, has, has restored hope for myself in the church. And then a church called Tove, where you lay out these, these beautiful uh, principles, um, again, showed me a better vision of what could be. And having that discernment to have the kind of conversations like that, because I what, what I ended up doing was I internalized everything that I experienced. And then I allowed it to make me anger, angry. I allowed it to make me bitter. Um, I carried that. I, I ended up quitting the first place I was at, and I ended up carrying that resentment to my next church that I worked mm. in. And although that church had its problems of its own, it's still those things. I still allowed them to impact me. And I, and I never went to the discerning route. I never sought help. I never tried to find somebody who I could talk to. Instead, I just 
not not towards uh, congregants, but towards other people on the leadership team, I spewed <laughs> what I think is, is fair to call toxicity back onto other people because I was allowing the way that I had been hurt to push against other people. Do you see, do you see what I'm saying? So I think yeah, yeah. that, that, that um, layer of discernment is, is so um, helpful and key. And like, I think that's wonderful advice. And that's the same advice that I'd want to give to anybody listening is if you are finding yourself in a, in a space uh, where something doesn't quite mm-hmm. seem right, seek out that discernment. Um, mm-hmm. But also something that you said that, that um, stood out to me uh, that again, I, I find, um, and I'm actually finding this more recently uh, in, in the sessions uh, that I go to uh, is this nature of fear. I had a, and you know, I know men aren't supposed to say that they get afraid or something like that, but just transparently, I had fear instilled in me um, in my first ministry role. And that has, I have projected that back then into the environment that I would call a Tove culture um, with, with some really wonderful people. Anytime I get a text message or an email or a missed phone call from the head pastor now, my heart sinks. And this person has never once done anything to cause me harm or to be afraid of them or anything like that. But the the place that I came from, I literally one time was pulled into an office and and screamed at, don't you understand I'm trying to protect you from this person? And that person was supposed to be my boss. Like it, it, it destroyed me completely. And that, that fear aspect, I never quite grasped until I started going to therapy and until I started reading a church called Tove. And by being able to name that, you have helped me to acknowledge what it was that was going on and release that to God in a way that I hope is, is healing and fruitful so that I continue, can, can continue in ministry. So I just want to thank you for, for calling out that fear element because it's been such a, a huge aspect of my past. So, so thank you for that. You know, one of the things, Josh, I, um, I really appreciate that, and we're, I'm glad to be of help on that. Um, that was a very um, inspired section for me in writing is the pondering of how these fear cultures develop. I think that we have to become people, and I think that you are taking steps in this direction already, where we recognize the fear. Some people don't see it. They don't see that they're right now they're being motivated by fear. They, they, they might even shift it and say it's, it's loyalty. I'm a loyal person. I'm faithful. I, I'm, I'm a part of the program. I'm doing the, the mission. Uh, but there's fear. You, you have to be able to recognize it. And when you recognize it, you have to know it's unhealthy. And you have to develop countermeasures in your own life that you may just use different terms. You know, I'm not going to do it because of the way you responded there. I actually think that this is a good idea. And your, your, your attempt to motivate me by intimidating me is not going to work. Um, you know, Passive-aggressive people work this way. Uh, they make you feel their presence when they're not there to do 
without without ever saying, or they'll use an indirect measure. And you have to recognize this and then say, you know, they're trying to make me feel guilty about this. Well, I'm not going to feel guilty because I don't think what I'm doing is wrong. And I am, therefore, I'm going to continue doing it. If they don't like it, then we'll have a conversation. So those, those are... Those are some measures that I think people can use to respond when they find themselves in power and fear cultures. And there's way too much of this in churches. I mean, you know, I, it's sad. It's really sad. You know, I'm, we're, we're Laura and I and Chris and Marker. We're just so grateful for the church we're in is, uh, you know, this just, this just isn't a part of the culture. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, thank you so much for that. So given the, we're kind of in this position of, you know, understanding what this looks like from the inside. So I have a, a question that I think is an interesting question. I'll pat myself on the back <laughs> for thinking of it. Um, but so let, let, let's, let's give a hypothetical here. Let's, let's just, let's say, um, you are in this position where you are at one of these churches and you are noticing these things, but, but you see really great good coming from this church, coming from this leader. You see that there is possibility for this to be something that can be redeemed. How do you go about doing that in understanding that if this leader has these narcissistic attributes to them, being confronted with this in a way from someone that's technically a quote unquote underling may not be possible or it may not be received very well. How can, so I guess to use an example, the worship pastor, which is where I've been serving in many different roles to the lead or founding or senior pastor, that level of subordination, how can, how can change be brought from the inside if you're that person that sees it from the underneath? Oh, Marty, you've asked the, the billion-dollar question. <laughs> um, here, you know, and this is this is to me is something that has to be recognized. If it is genuinely the case that the pastor you're talking about, I'm not I'm not saying you're talking about some person, the pastor that we're all talking about is a narcissist, it's not going to change. That's, that's how, how penetrating narcissism is to the personality of a genuine narcissist. You're not going to be able to go to them and get them to change. They're probably going to erupt in rage or dismiss you or humiliate you or pretend that they're listening and actually, they're not going to listen. Okay, so um, this is the, this is a problem. And often, these narcissistic type leaders are very, very successful. And it's very difficult to disagree with success in churches today when success is measured by what my friend Steve Carter calls uh, butts in the pew, bills in the plate, and baptisms in the in the pool. All right, so you got the three Bs, and, and you're going to win. And as long as that's happening, people are going to be happy. Um, all right, so so number one, I don't think uh, the goal should be we got to get this pastor to change, and I think we're going to plot together and get it to happen. I don't think, you know, my experience is 
99 out of 100 narcissists aren't going to change or listen. <clears throat> so I would say you have to become an agent of Tove in every cultural situation in your church as much as possible. Then uh, um, Laura and I talk about forming pockets of Tove. Find other people who are Tove-like and who want to work at Tove. Not, not in a way like, they're like that, but we're like this. That's sectarian in mentality. That's divisive. Instead, I think you want to you wanna start working Tove and finding a small group or a group of people who can form a pocket of Tove and then maybe think maybe another group of pocket of Tove is developing. And over time, enough pockets of Tove developed where there is some, some change. In the culture of the church, I, I know there are situations where a church is full of Tove and the pastor's a narcissist. That can happen. And my experience with many, even like at Willow Creek, I, I know that church was filled with people who were Tove. I, I have great respect for so many people who were involved, in, who have grown in their Christian life at that church. So... You can't, but but the so the whole story has stained the church. It's it's sad. Uh, so I would I would say pockets of Tove is is the is the key. Is start small, and in some sense, Marty, don't dream big. You Got know, <laughs> because yeah. you know maybe pray pray that the next pastor will be Tove. <laughs> well, yeah, and just just briefly, as you as just to close this question and this this topic, and um, my grandma has attended Willow Creek almost since the beginning. Um, her her husband died when uh, late late in life, and she got remarried at Willow Creek. Uh, she's you know in the Hybels family for a, a good a good long long while, and uh, you know I would definitely say my grandma is a part of the. The, the aspect of Tove at Willow Creek. She's now attending one of the satellite campuses closer to where she lives now um, and serves and loves that church and loves those people. And man, like you said, that church is full, is full of people that are loving yeah. and caring and they are truly Christ-like in who they are. Uh, yep. So yeah, I I echo all, all of what you just said. Thank you so much for that. Yeah. Sweet. Well, yes, I... Uh... Scott, I know uh, that you have to get ready and go here. So let us just uh, thank you one more time uh, for the work that you and your daughter uh, yes. did in, in writing this book. And uh, listeners, uh, seriously, go out and get yourself a copy of A Church Called Tove. You will not be disappointed. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed reading it. Um, and I know I'm going to uh, to be sharing it and, and passing it along uh, to some others as well. So Scott, thank you. And also uh, tell your daughter we said thank you as well. I will, Josh and Marty. It's good talking with you. And, uh, you know, let's uh, let's become agents of Tove ourselves. Most definitely. Great. Absolutely. I mean, All right. Great, Scott. Thank, Thank you. you so much. All right. All right. Bye. Yeah. Listeners, as always, uh, peace and love and go Caps. Go Blackhawks for both me and Scott. <laughs> <laughs>